HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Cutting the Curd has been brought to you by Academy Opus Cassius. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training in the heart of France. For more information, visit academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're million strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us and enjoy the show. Hello, this is Diane Stemple. You, I'm welcoming you to the second segment of the book review show on Cutting the Curd. This week we will be speaking to Diane St. Clair about her new book, The Animal Farm Buttermilk Cookbook. Diane has been making artisanal butter for over a decade on Animal Farm in Orwell, Vermont, and she started bottling her buttermilk in 2009. Diane, are you with us? I am. Welcome to Cutting the Curd. Thank you. I'm glad to be there. I'm delighted to have you. I understand your book is coming out June 4th? That's right. Any day now. I'm really excited. And it's a beautiful book. It's absolutely beautiful. The Everything about it, the pictures, the writing, it's, it's just a gorgeous book. I recommend it highly to everyone in the cheese world and beyond. Anyway, um, I have a couple of questions for you, of course. The first one is, how did you become the butter supplier for Thomas Keller? Well, um, when I first started making butter um, over a decade ago, um, I was actually the only farmstead butter maker that I knew about. And um, I had a family cow, and I actually then got another cow, and it was way too much milk for my family to use. So I started playing around with cheese and butter, actually, Mm -hmm. and I realized that there were a lot of 
I mean, it doesn't seem so now because there's many more. But at the time, I thought there were a lot of people making uh, farmstead cheese. But I didn't see anybody doing it with butter. So I, I quickly found out that I couldn't make butter and sell it legally without having a license. And another whole long story is how it took me a year to get that license, but it did. And so while I was doing that, I did a lot of reading about how to make butter. I bought a lot of out-of-print books um, from before there were um, factory-based creameries about how to do it on the farm. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of trial and error, but... Finally, I felt like I had mastered it, and uh, I had finally gotten my butter license. But I felt a little bit like um, you do after you've cooked a big Thanksgiving dinner. You've been in the kitchen so long, sort of sticking your fingers and everything that. And then it's you don't just really gobbled know up. How it tastes. Mm-hmm. You know how it tastes. Oh, okay. but you don't know how. You don't have an objective sense of it. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, who can I have taste my butter? And I had just finished reading Michael Rollman's, um The Soul of the Chef, which is a lot about Thomas Keller and how he started the French Laundry and his outlook on food. And I said, you know, this is the man that should really taste my butter. And, you know, what he tells me, I will absolutely trust. Uh-huh. So I wrote him a note and told him I was a small butter maker in Vermont and I was just getting going and... I wondered if he would taste my butter, and he emailed me back and said he would and told me just to put it in a FedEx box, which I did, and the next day he called me and said, this is Thomas Keller from the French Laundry, when, and my, I almost fainted, and, uh-huh. but before I could faint, he said, um, what are you doing? This is the most amazing butter I've ever tasted. Who wow. are you, and, <laughs> and what are you doing? And that just started a long relationship. That's phenomenal. I mean, you went right to the top. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I knew that I, because of the way I feel about my cows, I mm-hmm. I wanted to do all the milking. I really like having an individual relationship with my cows. I knew I didn't want to ever be a big, a big farm, mm-hmm. and so I knew that I wasn't ever going to make tons of butter, and mm-hmm. I wanted to stay small, and I wanted to do everything in as labor-intensive a way as possible, uh-huh. it and um, so I knew that I was going to have to go to somebody that would appreciate that and would would pay for that kind of product. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So that's an amazing story. I mean, that, that he also you know, reads his mail and gets back to people and... and well, this was a decade ago. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I'm not... I mean, in those days, I could call the kitchen at the French Laundry and he would answer the phone. And oh, okay. That's not, that's not the case anymore. Okay. So, you know, um, I, I, I don't know... I don't know how people nowadays get through to places like that. I think it's much more of a challenge. Right. Right, yeah, and you were yeah. you were um, the only one also at that time. You say I didn't realize that in reading it. I know there are more now, so I didn't realize a decade ago you would have been the singular artisanal butter maker. Well, uh, there I was the only one, or certainly in New England. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe there were people in other places, but the only sort of the smallest butter producers that I knew about at the time were Vermont Butter and Cheese and Strauss Family in mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. But they, you know, they were all, um, you know, 
much bigger. Pretty mechanized. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Much larger. Yeah. Now, I have another question about butter, and I also want to introduce our culinary expert, Sarah Zabrowski, has joined us in the studio. Sarah, this is Diane. Diane, this is Sarah. Sarah, Hi, Sarah. has Hi. been experimenting with your cornbread recipe uh, mm-hmm. in the past couple weeks, and um, so she's going to give us an opinion on... Uh, on that and other, and, and her sort of recipe opinion about your book. Okay. Sarah, do you have a, an initial comment about the, the uh, cornbread? So this is actually the first time that I've just had the buttermilk straight drinking it, um, and it is just so refreshing coming in uh, from a sweltering 90-degree day, and I, I'd be happy having a cup of this uh, during the summertime for sure. Thank you. <laughs> You know, it is a, it is a really a delectable drink, and I'm not sure. I mean, I do have a recipe in my book for buttermilk smoothies, which I hope people take advantage of because I think people are used to um, using sort of lactic acid cultured dairy products like yogurt and kefir, and drinking them on a hot day or drinking them for breakfast. But I don't know. It doesn't seem like they usually think of doing that with buttermilk, and it's a wonderful, um, you know, alternative. Mm-hmm. And I think your book makes a great case for that, that you can use buttermilk in many different ways that we don't realize and that can often be substituted for those substances. Right, right, exactly. You know, normally you get buttermilk in about a quart, but recipes mm-hmm. tend to, like your cornbread, tend to call for about a cup. Um, which leaves you with quite a bit of buttermilk afterwards. So right, right. I've been but no worries because it lasts forever. Yeah, I've been pouring it on muesli. <laughs> I've been making dressing with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah. totally agree with you that you can substitute it for so many different things. Um, yeah. It's just not something that people are so used to working with, and certainly I wasn't before. Right. So see, we have one convert here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I have, and also, you know, it's a wonderful alternative for cream, too, you know, especially for people who don't, you know, are either trying to watch their weight or whatever the issue is and don't want to use much cream. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it adds sort of a richness to things without all the fat. And if you get a cultured buttermilk, you know, some one that's thicker, it, it gives you that mouthfeel of cream without mm-hmm. all the calories. Mm-hmm. I have a question about your both your butter and your buttermilk. At one point in the book, you say that um, you know they'll taste great, but they're not always the same. And I right. guess, um, being more informed about cheese making, I'm wondering, what are the variations that you expect in, in your butter and buttermilk? Are they seasonal? Are they daily? Do they vary together? Is, is one of them more yeah. susceptible to change? Well, I mean, one again, one of the things that makes both of those products that I make unique as opposed to a factory-made product is that it, it does have a seasonal quality mm-hmm. because it reflects the milk at different times of the year depending on what my cows are eating. Right. So in the last uh, three to four weeks, um, my cows have finally been able to go out on pasture mm-hmm. in a slow spring in Vermont. Um, and so um, another unique thing about Jerseys, which are the kind of cows I have, in addition to having 
highest butter fat content in their milk, which makes them an excellent butter cow, is that they process the carotene in grasses differently than other cows. So that um, once they start being on pasture, their cream actually turns this deep yellow. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can see it. And um, so that then when I churn the butter, um, that turns just really bright yellow. You know, I don't think the buttermilk is all that different, except that perhaps it's got a more floral, lighter flavor to it, Mm -hmm. which my butter does too. Mm -hmm. Um, When cows are on pasture, butter fat, you know, actually goes down. Mm -hmm. So, um, because there's more water in the grass and more water in the milk. So the cream is lighter and... um, not quite as dense as it is in the winter. Okay, that's interesting. I because I didn't, I hadn't thought that through until I read it in your book. And yeah, also, I mean, not having that many cows me. would make, I guess, the particular cows more important for your product. Yes, it's very important. I mean, I love Jersey cows anyway. I think they're beautiful, but they are really the cows that are the right fit for this kind of product. Mm -hmm. Hmm. How did you come to write the book? Um, Well, I had started, you know, obviously I've been making buttermilk as long as I've been making butter because it's a byproduct of my butter. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, what's left over in the churn after my cream has been uh, churned into butter. So, but for years... um, the Department of Agriculture would not let me bottle it or sell it because I was too small to fit a conventional bottling machine into my creamery. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first started making butter, one of the biggest challenges I had was finding appropriate te- technology for my creamery, you know, te- um, the kind of technology that would let me get a license Mm -hmm. um, but would be small enough for what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, In the past 10 years, all of that's changed drastically. There's, you know, with with the widespread advent of more farmstead cheesemakers, the technology has caught up, and um, it's easier to find small-scale equipment. So Mm -hmm. four years ago, I found someone who was making small bottlers that, you know, made sense for me, and I was able to get that, and that's what started me on the path of being able to um, sell my buttermilk. And when I did that, um, it was written up in the New York Times. Florence Fabricant wrote something up about, you know, finally there's real buttermilk. There's buttermilk out of the churn. Mm-hmm. And um, and so then um, Angela Miller, who is a, actually owns Consider Bardwell mm-hmm. in Vermont, and is a cheese, you know, they make cheese. She's a cheesemaker and a book agent. agent. Yes, yes. Yeah, called me. Oh. Asked me if I wanted to write a buttermilk cookbook. Oh, great. Okay. So it was buttermilk, uh, it was recipe, buttermilk recipe driven, in other words. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because I also love the way you weave the farmer's story, your farmer farming story, Mm -hmm. throughout the book. Yeah, that was a real. The minute we sort of decided to do this recipe book, I knew that it was really important that the book have a sense of place because mm-hmm. 
I feel like that's my products really reflect the sense of this farm. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, I knew that I wanted all the chapters to start with stories about the farm. Okay. And that they had to weave in with the recipes. Okay, well, it's time for our break. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with both Diane St. Clair and Sarah Zaborowski. This is Cutting the Curd. The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. When you come to learn at the Academy, we instill our love for cheese, our expertise, and our experience so that you can support artisanal producers, impeccably care for the fine cheeses you carry, and serve your customers with skill and enthusiasm. We integrate hands-on practice, formal instruction, and classroom discussion in all of our courses. The Academy's programs are offered at the Mons Fromagerie in the heart of France, where cheese undergoes affinage and cheeses are received, prepared, and shipped. Several Mons retail shops are nearby. The surrounding countryside is the home to producers whose excellent cheeses are cared for by the Mons team. The Mons cheese business has more than 50 years' experience caring for and teaching about cheese in France, a country known as the source of some of the world's greatest cheeses, deepest cheese tradition, and the highest level of technological research and rigor in cheese making and ripening. The Academy has been recognized by the American Cheese Society as the first approved education center for those preparing for the certified cheese professional exam. Enroll now for Essential Foundations for Cheese Professionals or Affinage, the Art and Science of Maturing Cheese. For more information, visit at www.academy-mons.com That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E dash M-O-N-S dot com. Certified Cheese Professional is a registered trademark of the American Cheese Society. Hi, it's Diane Stemple. We're back on Cutting the Curd. We're interviewing Diane St. Clair whose new book, The Animal Farm Buttermilk Cookbook is coming out June 4th. It'll be available on Amazon.com and on some local bookstores, and she also is going to be appearing on June 14th at Bouchon Bakery uh, signing books. And we're also with Sarah Zaborowski, who I think had some trouble being heard the first go-around. So I'm wondering again if we could talk about the cornbread recipe and and how you um, improved it over the course of time, Sarah. Right. Well, in the past two weeks, I've been able to make cornbread many times. Uh, (laughs) She first brought it for my birthday party, which was very kind of her. I think this is how we decided to work with your cornbread recipe, Diane. (laughs) And and so, in fact, I did bring two types of cornbread to Diane's birthday party. And so one of them was standard with milk, and then the other one was made with buttermilk. And... um, 
In fact, actually, I've done three. So one was just sort of a standard buttermilk that you could get, you know, pick up in any sort of store. And then the Mm -hmm. other was um, with the farmstead buttermilk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that you can certainly tell the difference between them. So in this final one that we have with the farmstead buttermilk, it definitely is a lot tender and has sort of a rounder, rounder, fattier, fuller taste to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's a sort of, it's, it's a nuance, of course, you know. It's but quite it's, delicious. It, it, it absolutely I is. think it's more moist. Is it that, is. yeah. Mm, maybe. How did you, well, um, was cornbread one of your first things that you made with buttermilk, or have you been cooking with buttermilk your whole life and you can't even distinguish? Are you talking to me? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, no, I, I, um, I started... I sort of, well, did this sort of standard issue thing, scones. I uh-huh. made a lot, I, you know, did a lot of scones with buttermilk. Um, pancakes, there's an amazing pancake recipe in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and waffles, you know, sort of the baked goods mm-hmm. thing. And actually, one way I early on stumbled into some of the fears around buttermilk was I... I was making lasagna, and I was making a bechamel sauce for it, and I didn't have, believe it or not, any cream. Me not have any cream, but I did have <laughs> buttermilk, and I said to myself, boy, I wonder if this is going to work, and I went online to all these you know, food sites, and people were like, oh, no, no, don't don't use buttermilk. No, 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 it's going to break. It's going to curdle. It's not going to taste good. And I said, I can't believe this. And I and I made it, and it was fine. Mm-hmm. And I realized right then how afraid people are of the curdling issue and how simple it is to overcome that mm-hmm. if it does happen. Now, so, you recommend I, cooking it low and slow? Is that the, is that the right. biggest recommendation? Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, don't... don't pour it into something, a sauce that's already boiling. You mm-hmm. know, you should heat it moderately and slowly. But it, it, the other thing, and it's illustrated in the case of a bechamel sauce, is that if you've got like a roux going, if you have some flour and fat and you put buttermilk into that kind of mixture, it will not curdle. That will bind it. So... Um, that's a really helpful thing to know that you can, if you can add flour, some kind of thickener into a into a base or a sauce you have going, the buttermilk is less likely to curdle. And then if it does curdle, so what? It usually comes back together mm-hmm. <laughs> over time, and you know you're rewarded for it. There's a recipe in here for braised um, pork and. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in it, it does separate, but because you cook it slow and long on the stove, it all comes back together into this nice thick sauce. Mm-hmm. Well, what you pointed out in the book is that it's basically a little bit of butter left over that's only going to add to the recipe. Yes. A little well, bit of butter left over butter in the buttermilk yeah. from the initial churning. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and one thing I, I do want to say is that while you know, it probably is true that using my buttermilk would make things taste a bit different. I know that this cookbook is going to reach places where people can't get my buttermilk mm-hmm. because I'm so small and I don't have distribution all over the country. So that's why I also emphasize that people should try making it on their own. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that um, making butter at home, you can be rewarded by making the butter, but you also get great buttermilk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sarah, you had a question? Um, I do. So, you know, if you are looking to buy buttermilk, um, mm-hmm. Diane, and you look at the ingredients, yours, yours on the bottle says, you know, Jersey cream. Whereas right. if you pick up an ordinary right. quart of buttermilk, it'll just say milk. Right. Right? That's be- right. That's because it's not made out of cream. And I'm not sure that, I, I don't know if, if um, Diane Stemple had mentioned this before, but um, I'm not sure if that people actually realize that that's the huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, that buttermilk should traditionally be made from cream, but it's not. Typically, right in terms of so what's that's, available. I mean, that's the difference between my buttermilk and almost every other buttermilk on yes, the market. Indeed. Is that that's cultured milk and mine is from the churn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, even the ones that look like they might be real buttermilk may not be real buttermilk unless you look and it says cream. Right. Okay. Okay. Or, or you know the people you're buying it from churn butter. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're going to have buttermilk left over. <laughs> and so I'm hoping, I think that, you know, maybe when for people who go to farmer's markets, they can find a local dairy mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe sells milk and makes butter and has their own buttermilk. Or even um, encourage them to bring their buttermilk to market. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's just that the way that butter is made in in large quantities is that it's churned in the churn, and and once the butter is ready, instead of saving the buttermilk, what they do is they just flush cold water through the churn and and keep rinsing the butter out. Mm-hmm. That's why there is no buttermilk from the churn. Okay. Usually, mm-hmm. it's it's just a waste product because you want to get that butter out and sort of eat it with cold water so I don't know maybe there will be some more small farms that butter makers and they'll save their buttermilk mm, maybe um, <laughs> I loved many of your farm stories could you tell us about the um, the farmers helping each other in Vermont how you found out about that way back the, uh, my little pasture group you mean um, no the the cart the, the cart oh yeah 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 um, well, I mean, the issue of giving favors to right, people. And right, right. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just something that nobody tells you. Mm-hmm. You just kind of have to figure it out over time. Um, there is kind of a system. I, I think it's probably less in place now than it used to be when I moved here 25 years ago, where um, if you got into a pinch on your farm, which generally always happens at some point with somebody, you know, you'll need help with an animal or a piece of equipment will break just when you need it or, you know, something goes bad in a snowstorm or something. And you turn to your neighbor for help, it's kind of like one for them, zero for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you owe them that, mm-hmm. that stuff. And, and nobody usually keeps score and nobody says anything. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of this unspoken thing. Mm-hmm. And so um, the story that I told with uh, borrowing the cart and somebody giving it to me, even though they didn't know me and not really asking me for anything in return, was just to illustrate that uh, that system, I guess I mm-hmm. would call it. And you so kept it, it for quite some time. 
and and the the cart lender had made the other guy another cart in the yeah. meantime. Exactly. And had, nobody wanted to come track me down and get it back. Well, they maybe because you were new, they they might have guessed you didn't know the system. Well, no, I made it very clear in the beginning that I would give the cart back. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. Um, but I think, you know, those two guys were neighbors, so mm-hmm. uh, they kind of dealt with each other. And then um, later on, I kind of made amends for mm-hmm. having the cart a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a wonderful safety net of neighbors. It is a great safety net of neighbors, mm-hmm. and people in Vermont, especially in the farming community, really depend on that because stuff always does go wrong, either because of the weather or mm-hmm. something else. Yeah. Another funny part in the book that I thought, um, uh, when I read your explanation of make hay when the sun shines, mm-hmm. I thought that just meant like when you're good in, in a good mood party or, you know... Having nothing to do with hay. With agriculture. <laughs> right. And I did not realize you need three nice days in a row to um, yes. to put up your hay. Yes. <laughs> Global warming has thrown us all into a tizzy with that. Uh, because it doesn't have, the three nice days are even less likely to occur. Exactly. It's hard to get, it's getting harder and harder to get three really nice days mm-hmm. in a row. Yeah. You know, so, one of the uh, one of the things you say in the book is that you you think that people have romanticized farming, but I worry that reading your book might romanticize it further because it sounds it you make it sound so uh, complete and very hard work. You know, there's that, that comes yeah. across too, but it sounds right. like a wonderful life when you read your writing. Well, you know, I guess what I meant about romanticizing it is that it looks pretty and pastoral from the outside, but just like you said, Diane, it, it is a tremendous amount of hard work, and, um, and you know, the circumstances aren't always good. I mean, milking the cows at five in the morning in February, I'll, I'll tell you right now, it's definitely not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, but it, in the end, it's, um, it all balances out, and you are rewarded at the end of the day, usually, um, you know, you, you get to eat great food mm-hmm. right off the farm. Right. And um, the animals usually do something really great to cheer you up if you're in the dumps. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it is hard work. And I think it's hard work with not a lot of financial payback. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I think that's what kind of burns people out. Right. Oh. When yeah. did you have the time to write a book? Did it take a long time? Um, no, it only took, well, it took about a year and a half, and um, I just, I don't know, I felt very driven by this book, and, um, you know, it, it wasn't like pulling teeth for me. Mm-hmm. The thing that took the most time was testing the recipe. Okay, but at least you got to eat. That I mean, that might have been a lot of fun eating. Yeah, that's true, but... Um, you know, I, I'm i not the kind of cook that um, is really great at following recipes. Mm-hmm. I like to, you know, oh, boy, I like to throw this in now and throw that in now. And you really can't do that when you're testing recipes. You have to be really methodical and write everything down. And it, mm-hmm. so it, I had to really battle with myself to, to do that. Mm-hmm. So you were your own test cook? 
Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when when we did the when we did the food shoot, um, the, we had a food stylist who you know did just made all the recipes cold and mm-hmm. I mean that so she was a great backup mm-hmm. for all of the things. Mm-hmm. I right. tried to give her the most troublesome recipes to make sure <laughs> <laughs> to see if they'd work. Yes, but leave it to the professionals. (laughs) Well, our time is up. I want to thank you very much for coming on the show and remind people that you'll be signing your book, The Animal Farm Buttermilk Cookbook at Bouchon Cafe at the Time Warner Center on June 14th. I want to thank Sarah Zabrowski for joining us with the cornbread and her culinary expertise. And I want to say our next show is on June 14th. And it features Heather Paxson and her book, The Life of Cheese. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.